0: Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for being with me today. I hope hope you're having a good day so far. We've got some very interesting guests coming up this hour, like every hour. When we look at mountaintop experiences and mountaintop moments, climbing the mountain for a clearer view of God and ourselves, it's the subtitle of Jarrett Stevens' book, called The Mountains Are Calling. Think about Abraham when he was called to sacrifice his son Isaac on Mount Moriah and learned there that God would provide for him and meet his needs. So there's 10 really great stories, mountaintop moments in Jared's book and describes how the events that took place or will take place affects lives today. He goes through the study of both the Old and New Testament and he is with me on my studio line right now. Jared, welcome. Welcome.
1: Hey, Bill, thanks so much for having me, man. Good to be with you again.
0: Always nice to have uh, a fellow Houstonite. I I lived in Houston for a little while. We chatted about that last time you were on, and I know you are in Houston, and I appreciate uh, you, and I think your book is fantastic, and it provides some really interesting insight. I'm dying for you to tell my listeners more about that and some of the mountain uh, experiences and what we can learn.
1: Yeah, well, this book, God put this... Message in my heart. Probably around ten years ago, I was actually uh, headed to preach at a student camp in the mountains of Colorado. And you know, us preachers, when we go to preach at a camp or something, we usually have our sugar stick sermons, Bill. You know, (laughs) the ones that we know are gonna, you know, make an impact or that have in the past. And I'm telling you, I was flying in to do this camp, and the spirit of God. Uh, would just not let me go. And he was just, it just sensed God, just saying, these students need a fresh word, Jared. You need to bring a fresh word. And I think, well, that's great, but I land here in like 20 minutes and uh, camp starts tonight. And uh, what am I going to ta- talk to these students about? And, uh, you know, camp for me was always a mountaintop experience, you know, where you just sense the presence of God in a real palatable way. And uh, here I was flying over the mountains of Colorado to do this camp and it just like it hit me. It's the, like the spirit of God just said, Jared, why don't you tell them what I did on mountains? And I'm thinking, okay, well, what'd you do on mountains? So I grabbed the Bible and I just start going through it. And I'm telling you, Bill, it's like the, the words were just coming off the page <laughs> and into my heart. Yeah. God did so much on mountains. I mean, you think about it. Uh, you have the episode with Abraham and Isaac that happened on Mount Moriah. God gives The Ten Commandments uh, to Moses on Mount Sinai, where we learn about God's holiness and His character and how He would interact with His people. You got the great passage in Elijah, 1 Kings, where uh, the prophet of God calls down fire on the mountain there. Uh, You get to the New Testament, and the Bible tells us that Jesus would oftentimes go to a desolate mountain and pray. His first sermon wasn't in a temple, it was on the side of a mountain, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, His crucifixion happened on a mountain. Uh, His ascension took place on a mountain, transfiguration, where who he was on the inside was manifested on the outside, happened on a mountain, his promise returned to a mountain. I could go on and on and on of how God revealed himself in unbelievable ways on these mountains. And so that's how the book came to be. And I just called it The Mountains Are Calling because I really believe when God calls us to a mountain, you know, our perspective changes. He changes our perspective of who he is and changes our perspective of who we are. And so that's kind of the thesis of the book.
0: Jared, it also sounds like Jesus probably knew how to do some climbing.
1: Yeah, he did, right? Well, course, he's on top ever... of
0: these mountains, he's didn't uh, he didn't rappel up. I think he probably climbed up. Climbed up.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm getting ready. I'm going to take a group to the Holy Land in uh, next December, and I've been, you know, a number of times. And of course, the mountains, terrain there, uh, and and just being there to walk where Jesus walks, beautiful. And you see uh, some of these mountains, these hillsides, if you will. Uh, that Jesus would walk up and spend these times with his disciples, teaching these crowds, and uh, just amazing to put yourself there on ground zero. I tell all these people that we take to Israel, it's like, you know, it's HD. Once you get to the Holy Land and see it, uh, you'll never read your Bible the same. And being on some of these mountains uh, where these events happened is just a game changer. My, my favorite place to preach in all the world, Bill, is Mount Carmel. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a statue there of Elijah uh calling that fire down and then slaying the false gods of Baal and I'm telling you it's something else to preach that message there uh on that actual mountain where it occurred. It's 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 awesome.
0: My guest is Jarrett Stevens in his book is The Mountains Are Calling. He's a guy who writes fresh materi- material hours before delivering it. Uh I'm so inspired. <laughs> So, Jared, let's take a, let's take one of these great mountain experiences and add some application to it so we can sort of get that perspective on it. Let's maybe talk about Abraham, uh, Abraham being called to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah and, and yeah. learn there that God would provide for him and meet his needs.
1: Yeah, it's an amazing mountaintop experience, isn't it? I mean, uh, we read that story, and for those of us that are familiar with the Bible, we know how it ends, right, that God's going to provide a ram in the thicket and Abraham doesn't have to sacrifice his son Isaac. But Abraham sure didn't know how that story was going to end. And the fact that he obeyed the Lord, he trusted, he obeyed. Uh, Most scholars tell us that that was a a three-day journey up Mount Moriah in order to do this. And I've got to imagine uh, that Abraham was praying and sweating the whole way up. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? But he was walking in obedience. And, you know, for us, God will call us to a mountain, and oftentimes that it's going to take a lot of sacrifice. And uh, it's going to cost us something. Uh, but what we get in the end result, if we'll do like Abraham and trust and obey, is what we see is God will, God will provide for us in a way that we never, ever, ever knew or understood that he could. He'll reveal himself in a new way. On that mountain, he revealed himself to Abraham as Jehovah-Jireh, where we get his name that God, my God, will provide. And so, you know, the application for me for Mount Moriah is whatever God calls us to do, Uh, it's going to cost us. There's always a cost with following the Lord. But if we'll do like Abraham and trust and obey, and how did Abraham make it up that mountain for three days? The same way we'll make it up the mountain. We put one foot in front of the other and we put our eyes on God. If we were putting our eyes on what we were leaving behind or what we were going to have to sacrifice, we would never make it up the mountain. Uh, Abraham would have never made it up the mountain if he would have just been concentrating on his son. But what he was doing was focusing on God And that's how we make our way up that mountain. It's one foot in front of the other. We trust and we obey. I think of that hymn, trust and obey. There's no other way uh, to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. And when we do that, again, God reveals himself in fresh ways. We learn something about him. We learn something about ourselves, and it changes us forever.
0: Yeah, that's so true. Jared, talk about uh, Moses uh, meeting God in a burning bush. That was on a mountain. Um, Yeah, let's talk about that.
1: Yeah, it sure was. And uh what a, a scene that was, uh, you know, hearing uh, this audible voice of God coming from this bush uh, that wasn't being consumed, but yet the fire was in the bush. I, there's a great book out uh, that I read years ago called, uh, and there's a chapter in it called "Any Old Bush will do." And uh, I love the thesis of this this chapter of this book uh, because uh, it wasn't uh, the bush, it wasn't the bush that made, uh, that, uh, made it special. It was the fact that God was in the bush that made it special and, uh, any old bush will do. And when God's in the bush, you pay attention. And, uh, of course, Moses gets his call calling there. Uh, he had run from God in disobedience and rebellion and for 40 years was on the backside of nowhere. Uh, and then God reveals himself in a, in a new way. And, uh, you know, Moses was doing what he had done every single day, And oftentimes it's in the mundane, Bill, that I found, you know, we get tired of going through the same thing every day, and we think, God, when's it going to get different? I mean, I'm doing the same thing every day. I'm taking the kids to school. I'm picking them up. I'm busy being a housewife, or I'm going to the office, and I'm making a living, and we just get in the mundane. But what I've found is if we'll be faithful in the mundane, you never know when God's going to show up. And that's exactly what happens there in Exodus chapter 3. Moses is doing what he had done every single day 40 years before that time. And God shows up on the scene, and so uh, you know in the in the it's in the ordinary mundane routine of life that God may just show up. we just need to be looking for him
0: that 's such an important point jared i I'm so glad you said that because there's um, we need to be reminded constantly of how important each day is each hour and to and to be reminded that that in god 's economy um Nothing is inconsequential.
1: Yeah, nothing's wasted, is it? No, is God's God's so faithful, uh, and when we think that he's forgotten us, he hasn't. You know, I I think I'm really big, Bill, on writing books that give hope. I think that's what people need uh, more today uh, than anything else is they need hope. And uh, that's what, you know, my books are about, whether it's The Mountains Are Calling or the second one that I wrote called The Always God it's always about giving people hope. Moses thought he was over. You know, he had run from the Lord, uh, had run from his people. He thought, his, his, he thought God had put him on a shelf, but God hadn't put him on a shelf. God was teaching him things in those 40 years in the backside of a desert that he couldn't learn anywhere else. And oftentimes uh, we're going through the mundane and the ordinary in life, and we think, man, God's not using me. God's, God doesn't want anything to do with me. And that's just not the case. God's doing things in those waiting times of life that he can't do any other way. And so I would just really encourage our listeners, whoever's out there listening, that they're going through life. Maybe they're driving down, you know, they're on their way home right now, and it's just been the same thing Uh, It seems day after day after day, week after week after week. You just keep your focus on the Lord. You keep walking with Jesus, and it's just a matter of time before he shows up. And the way I like to say it, Bill, is sometimes God shows up and sometimes God shows off. And, uh, <laughs> like you that. know, in, in that in that bush, uh, God didn't just show up. He showed off and uh, he He used Moses in an unbelievable way. And for those that are walking through the mundane, you never know when God's going to show up and show off in your life and use you in an unbelievable way.
0: Great point, Jared. And just I want to remind people listening that the Mountains Are Calling is the name of the book. But we're not talking about mountaintop experiences, which people generally associate with something spectacularly, uh, exciting. Um, and for, uh, Abraham trudging up three days in the mountain was, and what he, what happened up there was his experience. Uh, but yeah. it wasn't like this is the, when I think of your, uh, youth camp and everyone's at the, the, having their mountaintop experience, that is usually incredibly joyful where mm-hmm. I think the point you're making is some of these mountaintop experiences may not feel at all, like they're joyous.
1: Oh, Bill, think about this. Now, if you ask the average listener that's listening to us right now, when they felt closest to the Lord, and that's a mountaintop experience, right? Where his yes. presence is palatable. He seems more near than ever before. Um, 99% of those listening to us would say that closest they were ever to the Lord was in a time of brokenness, right? Right. Uh, it wasn't the mountaintop, it seemed. It was the valley. And I, I write one chapter in, in the book, I, I write on the Garden of Gethsemane, Uh, It's very interesting to me talk talk about going to the Holy Land, the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, the lowest time of Jesus's life. I mean, where he was sweating drops of blood, uh, where he was arrested and ultimately handed over to the authorities, betrayed by his disciples. Uh, It happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. Well, isn't it interesting that the Garden of Gethsemane is on a mountain? Uh, It's on the it's on the mountain. It's on Mount Moriah, and I just make that point in the book to say, oftentimes. You know, the, the mountaintop experiences of life, they, they feel more like valleys at the time. But mm-hmm. if we're defining mountaintops by experiencing the presence of God, the palatable presence of God, uh, when we get through those broken experiences, when we go through those valleys, oftentimes we look back at those times. And we think, you know what? That was a mountaintop moment because Christ was so near. Uh, he, He was so close to me in those times. And so I even include a whole chapter on the Garden of Gethsemane because it was on a mountain.
0: Cool. Let me take a little break. Jared Stevens is my guest, and his book is The Mountains Are Calling. We'll be right back. You are listening to an Encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. Welcome back. My guest is Jarrett Stevens or Dr. Jarrett Stevens, I should say. Um, He has a PhD uh, and he's a very smart guy. You're so accessible. Rosie and I were talking at the break. We're saying, Jared's such a nice guy. He's, he's so accessible. And that's the oh, way you well, write. It's you. the way you talk, which makes your books good.
1: Well, thank you for saying that. That means a lot, Bill. Truly, yeah. really, thank you.
0: So, Jared, when we talk about, I, I want to go back to the Garden of Gethsemane, because I didn't know that was in a kind of a mountain mountaintop um, location. But let's talk about that dark um, mountain where darkness happened, um, and remind us of some certainties. You have this in your book.
1: Yeah, you know, I think that's uh, so important. And Oftentimes, um, we ask uh, the wrong questions when we come to a place like uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, and we're going through times of suffering. And listen, this is the truth. We all go uh, through times of suffering. And so I encourage the reader in this chapter. Uh, Don't make what I call a bad trade. Typically, what happens when times of uncertainty and darkness come is we trade what we know for what we don't know. And we want, you know, why did this happen? Well, we may never know this side of eternity, why this trial, why this trouble, why this heartache has happened in our life. I've heard a term like this, that the most uh, heard words in heaven uh, are going to be, aha, aha. (laughs) You know, I finally see it. I finally get it. Aha. And so uh, when we go through times of suffering and brokenness, don't trade. It's very important. Don't trade what you what you don't know for what you do know. In other words, you may not know why this is happening. But what you do know is that God loves you. What you do know is that God has a plan for you. What you do know is that nothing touches the hand of God without first filtering through his holy hands. Um, what you do know is that God is faithful. What you do know is that God's never going to let you go. What you do know is that God's presence is in your life. And so I just try to ch- challenge people: don't trade what you don't know in the times of of darkness for what you do know. And then I just talk about some certainties in the suffering in in in, in uh, the dark night of the soul is what Saint John of the Cross called it. Uh, first of all, that suffering is universal and it's unavoidable. I mean, it's just a truth that uh, all of life, because of sin. Uh, it, it, it through nature and it through humanity into chaos. Certainty number two is that suffering is not a judgment for sin. I think this is very important. Sometimes we think when we go through suffering uh, that, oh no, God must be uh, mad at me. Uh, but suffering is not judgment for sin. Jesus suffered and he never sinned at all. He was the perfect uh, sinless son of God. And uh, number three, suffering is temporary. You know the scripture says that you'll go through this trial for a little while. First Peter says a little while. There's a there's a definite end to our suffering. Now it may be the it may be the end in death, but it's still compared to eternity. Nothing. Certainty number four is that God loves me and He hasn't forgotten me. Uh, I think that's very important, and I personalize these in the book because I want people, as they're reading the book, to personalize it themselves that God loves me. He hasn't forgotten me. The Bible says there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And then certainly, number five is God empathizes with me in my suffering. Uh, you know, God, God is there. He's an ever-present help in time of need. And then certainty number six is when we suffer, it's okay to ask why. Uh, you know, that that's part of being a human. Uh, it's part of our frailty. And I try to tell believers when they go through dark nights is, listen, God can handle all of your questions. Uh, bring your questions to Him. Even Jesus on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, so He can handle your questions. He can handle your doubts. He can handle your fears. And so you just bring them to Jesus. But, but don't trade what you don't know uh, for what you do know.
0: That's so smart. I, I'm So glad to be reminded of that. Um, And let's, uh, in our time remaining, we've got three and a half minutes or so. uh, Mm -hmm. Jared, I'd love for you to talk about uh, the first sermon that Jesus preached on the side of a mountain in Galilee.
1: Well, we know it as the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I think, Bill, for me, the greatest point on the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus over and over and over again, uh, referred to God as Father. Now, this was his longest uh, sermon that we have in Scripture. And he's got all of these people on this hillside sitting down. And, you know, to them, God god was not a father. Uh, he was maybe this distant deity. Um, you, you know, he, he was this judge up in heaven. But nobody saw God as Father. And so Jesus comes on the scene, and he, he just turns everything over. Uh, and he, to me, the greatest thing about the Sermon on the Mount is listening to Jesus teach these common people that God is a father. And as a father, he's the perfect father. He loves them. He protects them. That's why he says, look at the birds of the air. You know, if if if, if they have what they need, how much more value are, are you to the father? He's going to provide for you. Don't be anxious about anything, but everything, Bill, flows from this idea that God— his father and it's on this side of a mountain this first sermon that Jesus ever has he doesn't he doesn't preach down to the people uh, he doesn't you know he's not preaching judgment upon them but instead he's he's teaching them a message of love and he's communicating to these to these illiterate common poor people you have a father in heaven who loves you and hasn't forgotten you. And I'm telling you, there's people listening to us today that need to hear that, that they have a God in heaven. He's not mad at you. He's not casting judgment upon you. You have a father. And sometimes, you know, us living in this world, we, we get the father skewed because maybe we had an earthly father that left us, abused us, or abandoned us. But God is the perfect heavenly father. He doesn't do any of those things. His love is pure And uh, that's my encouragement to those listening as we close out these final minutes is that, you know, God is a a father who loves you, has a plan for your life and wants to provide for you and uh, be there for you in your time of need.
0: Jared, do you have any uh, personal mountain experiences that you can share in the last two minutes?
1: You know, the, 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 I I go every year, Bill, uh, to my, uh, with my family, uh, up to the mountains of Colorado. We go to a family camp at Sky Ranch uh, in Ute Trail, Colorado. And it's a highlight for my family. If you ask my kids where do you want to go, Disney or family camp, they're choosing family <laughs> camp every single nice. time. And we, we have a blast. You know, we, we do the river. Uh, there's a whitewater rafting there. And we can, we can go up the mountain. They've got the ropes courses, of course. And uh, you've just got the beauty of, of the mountain. And, you know, anybody that stood at the base of a mountain and looked up, and seeing God's creation, or you know, you can almost touch the, you feel like you can almost reach up and touch the stars. In those moments, uh, it makes you feel really, 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 really small. And that's why I love going up there, Bill, because for me, when I get into these mountains, I can see how grand and great God is, and how small I am. And I think in the everyday life, as problems come, and as we're just walking through the everyday schedules and calendaring of life. Our problems and our life, the social media, me, 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 me world, we get magnified. And as a result, God gets small. And what I love about getting to the physical mountains is that God gets magnified. And when we magnify God, we get really small. It puts us in our place. And that's a good thing. And our problems get really small because we got a big God. And so I, I love every summer going to the mountains. It just reminds me of who God is. It reminds me of who I am. And uh, man, it just enlarges my heart of worship because we serve a great God. That big, big, big God loves me and gave himself for me, longs to have a relationship with me. And I'm telling you, it just overwhelms me every single
0: time. And I can hear it in your voice. Jarrett Stevens, you made my Monday better. Thank you.
1: Bill, thanks for having me on. Always a pleasure being with you.
0: Thank you so much. Jarrett Stevens has been my guest. His book is called The Mountains Are Calling, Make the Climb for a Clearer View of God and Ourselves. So we'll take a little short break. It's not going to be long. And then when we return, Pastor Chris Palmer, our Greek teacher, will be joining us. We'll be right back. Hey, it's the end of the year, and you are absolutely amazing in your generosity. Thank you so much. If you've not made a gift to Faith Radio, we would love it. You can do that at myfaithradio.com. Thank you so much. You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. All right, Mondays are always a good day to learn Greek, whether, whether you want to or not. And that's what we're going to do today with uh, Reverend Chris Palmer. He's the founder and pastor of Light of Today Church in Novi, Michigan, and also the founder of Chris Palmer Ministries. Chris has become a regular guest and just love having him on. He's written a number of books, several. The one that I always love referring to is called Strange Scriptures, Deciphering 52 Weird, Bizarre, and Curious Verses from the New Testament. He is our Greek teacher. I love having him on, and he's back with us today. Hey, Chris, how are you?
2: Bill, it's good to be with you, man.
0: Yeah. So, what was your first job you ever had in life? First
2: job I ever had in life. In life, yeah. I, I worked at a, I worked in an ice cream shop, <laughs> and I made three three dollars and fifty cents an hour making swirl cones. So
0: <laughs> nice. Were you good at it?
2: You know, what? I was actually really bad at it. And my first two days, all they did was tell me to practice, and I would take the cones and throw them in the slop sink and just keep practicing. There was like 30 combs in there by the time it was all done.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> and here's the, and here's the funny thing, Bill. I quit after like five shifts.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you had had it, right? Oh, that's
2: funny. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I was done. 350 an hour. I was done. I was out of there.
0: Yeah. And well, what was the first car you ever had?
2: First car was a Jeep Grand Cherokee, I believe. Oh, sweet. Yeah.
0: That's nice. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. I, I I always liked finding out a little bit of first because now you're writing books on Greek. So I I always think, well, what did Chris start doing that got him interested or <laughs> distracted? And uh, so that's helpful because you know the more you're on it, the more I want my listeners to know you and get to know you. So anyway, yeah.
2: Well, you know, the, well the funny thing is I slept through my first Greek class in college. Like I would, I went the minimum amount of classes that I didn't like Greek, and now I teach Greek, so I don't really know how that works, but the Lord works in mysterious ways, I think.
0: So not to be discouraged if you are yeah. struggling in a class or you don't even like it, because one day you might be teaching it.
2: There you go. That's, I think that would be a fitting
1: moral for this story, though.
0: I think it would so. be, too. There's enough students right now. They're not maybe listening to this show, but yeah. they're in the middle of a the class, they they don't they go. What's the point of this? I can't. I'm not getting it. I don't want to do it, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I might even drop it. And then they end up being like yes. you, and they they write books on it and teach it now.
2: It's 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 one of those. It's like one of those turnaround testimonies. Like it'd make a great miniseries on Netflix, I think, maybe or something like that. Right.
0: Well, I think <laughs> we should call Netflix tomorrow. You and me will pitch the idea. <laughs>
2: the, the Chris Palmer story. <laughs> It's I love beautiful. it. I love it.
0: <laughs> so I know you've got some Greek uh, for us today. I'm always counting yeah. on you teaching us some uh, Greek, so let's get started.
2: Yeah. Okay, well, let's start in Second Timothy, one of the pastoral epistles where the Apostle Paul is writing to his young protege, protege, Timothy. Now, let's set this up a little bit because we know that this is going to be the last time that we hear from the Apostle Paul in an epistle, and the way that he's going to go out is he's going to write to his predecessor. Timothy had quite hit quite a job because he was going to be the successor to—well, he was, I should say, the successor to Paul's church. Uh, his greatest church that he built was the Church of Ephesus, and Timothy's pastor in the church, and he's a young pastor, and Paul's giving him some advice. I would say these are, of course, it's inspired by the Spirit, things that he's learned over the years in his ministry. We don't have great detail on it, but we know these are passing the wisdom to him. And he tells Timothy. And Paul really loved to use military metaphors. He was, I think, that has to do with Paul's Roman citizenship. Maybe Paul saw a lot of connection between his own Jewish identity and his Roman citizenship that pervades is pervasive in his writing. And he tells Timothy, Timothy, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Now this. Scripture is really power-packed, and it's very practical for us today, and it doesn't require a lot of context for us to understand the meaning of it. But I always teach this to, to young people that have the call of God on their life, or they're pursuing wherever they feel God has placed them. Um, because one thing we notice right off the bat is Paul tells them, don't get entangled in civilian pursuits. Civilian pursuits aren't necessarily—these are not sinful things, they're not bad things, they're just things that, that are pretty normal, they're pretty par for the course, and pretty standard— and the Greek word here to get entangled in, empleko emplaco. Well, depends on where you put it. Emplaco, emplaco. Okay. Um, comes from. It, it, I would say that it, it was per, it, it was a pervasive word in the first century um, A.D. But it literally means to scuffle with, or to intertwine with, or to to ensnare. And if you look throughout history, how this word was being used in, in maybe third century, second century, fourth century BC, when Greek, word, when, when Greek was wide and had widespread usage, it, it was used in the sense of a sheep whose wool had gotten caught in thorns or described someone who had their hand in another person's garment in order to hold them back. And so the best way that you could illustrate this is two people wrestling and one person is trying to take the other person down and he grips them by the head and he pulls their hair and he takes his fingers and he entwines it back then in, in the first century, they had long hair. He wraps his fingers all in their hair and he starts to pull. Now that gives us a really good picture of what Paul telling Timothy is don't allow the things of this world to get a hold on you to a place where it causes you to miss what's right in front of you that God has placed in front of you. And the practical takeaway um from this is that all so often things that are non-threatening, okay, are often the things that restrict us from doing precisely what God is asking of us in a required season or or a required moment. I often use the example of family, how often family or the opinions of our family members, the opinions of friends, or um, even hobbies that are well-intended begin to take up space that It shouldn't or begin to take a place in our life that it shouldn't Um, and this seems to be exactly what the apostle paul is telling timothy is don't allow the common things of this life although they're non-threatening and non-malevolent to actually become to that place and that is uh he's putting the burden back onto timothy and telling him precisely um what to do and i often find in my own life though that has been a scripture that the holy spirit brings to mind is not to be distracted.
0: That's such an important point, Chris. And thank you for making it. Thank you for letting us be reminded of how important this is. When you talk about civilian civilian pursuits, um, how deep do those roots go? Is it is it as far as politics and everything else? Is that part of civilian oh, pur- I, I, pursuits? I, I,
2: uh, yeah, absolutely. I don't. Th- I think that's a perfect example. You know, I don't think it's anything wrong with the Christians serving in government at all. I'm all for Christians right. represent representing in government, um, but I'm the of the opinion that we can allow our our political um, opinions to really become the thing that is our demise, even if they're good opinions, and even if they're fair opinions. Mm-hmm. But I think I think Paul is really trying to tell Timothy in not so many words is to maintain a balance in your life. And that balance would be uh, a matter of priority and prioritizing what place does the gospel have in how you speak and what you do and how you live um, and and not allowing other things to take the place of that. Uh, and I think politics is probably one of the things that can take the place of that um, without going down that rabbit trail yeah. um, in, in any detail. I, I think I've seen enough of that in the last couple of years um, and probably we'll see more of that as we approach a midterm election um, where people become, you know, they start off well-intended and then they just get to the point where everything is conspiracy. Everything is, um, you know, they can't think straight anymore. Um, and that's, and that's not good. I mean, t- Peter tells us to be sober-minded in light of the coming of Christ. Peter, mm-hmm. t- I think I shared this on the show to be sober-minded that were are there sober-minded it um, means to think straight, to not be drunk or inebriated in the way that you process stuff. And he says to be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And that's really interesting because in the Greek, when, when you see for the sake of, it, it's likely a data of an instrument or the reason why would mean because this is going to have an effect on the way that you pray. And so I, I really think that he's telling us that you know sometimes we detach our mind from you know our spiritual life like somehow the mind and the spirit you know they're in opposition I, I don't think that's at all what scripture teaches I think this is proof of that that in order for us to pray effectively we have to be straight thinkers um, and and we bring that sober mindedness into a place of prayer because In that sober-mindedness, there's a willingness to accept the will of God, there's a willingness to submit to the will of God, and there's a willingness to carry out the will of God, Um, which I think is all very much um, a priority for us as we live our Christian life.
0: Mm -hmm. So I appreciate uh, Chris talking about this, not being distracted, Um, and I often quote from C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite quotes of his, which is, Mm -hmm. what isn't eternal is eternally out of date mm
2: Yep. I would so agree. It's nah, good to see C. C. S. Lewis I think is 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 quite a smart guy I hear.
0: From what I understand, I've reached out to him a number of times to be on the show. I heard haven't heard a thing back.
2: <laughs> That's funny. I've 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 written a few letters myself and yeah. haven't heard nothing back either. Yeah. So did, what, what kind of guy is he? I don't know.
0: Uh, Kinda of sounds like he's in <laughs> hiding. But uh <laughs> Um Again, just again how important it is. When it comes to civilian pursuits, important to have lots of interest and be well-rounded and all that, but not let it uh, consume your life.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, can we can do we have can we have time for one more before the break? Can I can I roll something in here?
0: Uh, we have three minutes before the break, three or four. So if you want to go mm-hmm. ahead, yeah, go. Let's go.
2: So we'll we'll start with Jude, Jude verse number four. now. Bill, I love the book of Jude. And I'm actually teaching it this week, and I'm very excited about it because maybe in your experience, have you noticed that the Book of Jude kind of gets treated like the redheaded stepchild? Like, when was the last time you heard someone pull Jude out in a sermon? You know what I mean? Like, you don't commonly hear the pastor say, "Turn to the Book of Jude," and that's because Jude has got these really—it's a very short letter, and it's very inflammatory. It's very inflammatory and somewhat offensive. When, because Jude is going out what's that?
0: Wouldn't they say turn to the page of Jude?
2: <laughs> turn to turn to the half page of Jude maybe, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right next to the quarter page of Third uh, John.
0: Right. <laughs> I digress. I'm sorry, Chris. Uh,
2: yeah, no, it's good, it's good. Turn to the you know what's funny is if you want to get to know me, um, when I first began to translate Koine Greek, uh, like word for word and, and try to make translations, you know, you have to do books of the Bible. So I started with Jude. Because it's so short, yeah. and it turns it turns out that Jude has some of the most difficult Greek in the whole entire New Testament. Aside maybe from Acts, um, in the book of Hebrews, it's probably like third level, like maybe the third difficult book to do. And the reason is, is because in Greek there's no word order; you don't uh-huh. have to maintain a word order. Like Bill, you know, talks on the radio; it could be radio talk Bill the. That's okay. how Greek works. And John maintains that word order, like a bright branching sentence of the way we do it, but Jude kind of disregards it altogether. And it's very tough to translate when you're first translating, especially as an English speaker. So, yeah, it's pretty interesting. Um, but anyway, Jude gets into – he's talking about these false teachers, and he kind of gets – he talks about contending for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. And he's, he sat down to write to encourage them, and then it's like the Holy Spirit – leads him another way, and he launches this full-scale defense against false teachers. Uh, so it shows us the place that apologetics has, and it shows us the place that apost- apostolic authority uh, and inspiration have in defending our faith from people who would try to subvert it. And these individuals that Jude is coming against were were heretical in a, in a lot of ways, and, and, and they were basically taking the grace of God and making it as an excuse to live a lascivious life, these were Gnostic teachers, pre-Gnostic teachers, who felt that um, spiritual life was divorced from the way that we we practice uh, holiness, what we'd call holiness today, the way that our habits, the way that we act. Um, You know, so this eventually led to sexual sin, uh, gluttony, sins of the flesh, which they made excuses for. Um, And Jude goes after them. And he says that they are the, the way that they subverted the church and, and, and hindered the church is that they crept in unnoticed. Now, this is a very interesting word. Do we have? Should I wait for the break to reveal the meaning of it, Bill?
0: Um, I think so. Let's uh, let's just okay. hit pause here for a minute. Uh, Chris Palmer is my guest. We're learning Greek, which we do about month, once a month with Chris. And the book I always go to is called Strange Scriptures: Deciphering 52 Weird, Bizarre, and Curious Verses from the New Testament. We'll be right back with Chris Palmer in just a minute. You are listening to an Encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, Hope, and Clarity in a special repeat performance. I'm back with Chris Palmer, we're learning some Greek in the first 15 minutes of our time with Chris. I learned the Greek word "implaco," and now we're moving on, doing a nice job. We're um, picking up exactly where we left off, Chris.
2: Okay, so the word we're looking, we're learning now, is "Paris Duo." Can you say "Paris Duo"?
0: Paris Duo. Paris Duo. Like Paris. Paris. Paris.
2: And then. Yeah, like the city of Paris, and then think of duo, like dynamic duo, putting together a Paris duo. Got it. All right, good. Okay, so it would, it would mean, in a sense, to creep in unnoticed. So picture somebody who's sneaky, somebody who is unseen. Maybe if we put it into our way of understanding, like a burglar creeping in. Um, and actually, what is so interesting about this word, and I would argue that you could have understood it in this sense, because it was pervasively used in a sense to describe how a leech would bite you, right? A leech. Now, a leech. It was used for a leech bite. Okay. And a leech. In, in history, it was used in this sense. Um. So I actually was bitten by a leech a couple of well, I would say about a decade ago, maybe ten years ago. I was fishing, and I was wading in the water, and you know, I was with my bare feet. And when we're done fishing, we get into the car, we're driving back to where our campsite was at. And I looked down on my feet, and there was a leech, Bill, just feasting on me, just having at it. And, you know, I was his lunch, and I felt somewhat offended, I got to have to say, because it didn't ask for my permission. He didn't, I didn't invite him. He just took my blood and started enjoying it. And so I thought, you know, the nerve of this thing. <laughs> and then, of course, you know, I rip it off, throw it out the window. Um, and then the question you have, I have two questions. Number one, how long has that leech been there? And number two, um, why didn't it hurt? I didn't feel the leech at all. It didn't feel like a bee sting. It didn't feel like a mosquito bite. You literally didn't feel it. And so... It had been on there a while because there was a little blood when I removed it. Well, it turns out as I did my homework that the reason why you don't feel a leech bite is because when a leech bites into you, it releases an anesthetic that numbs the victim from sensing it and detecting it. So leeches are extremely sneaky and they approach you and they just begin to suck your blood. I think it's fair to say. But the picture we get of these false teachers in the book of Jude is that they sneak up into the church undercover. And when they begin to suck the church's blood and suck the life out of the church with their false teaching, they do it undetected in a way that is completely untraceable. And so what I think we're learning here is that as believers, the only way we can really detect um, who's who, who well, I think Jesus teaches us, there's two ways that the scriptures teaches. Number one is through the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit, who discerns and gives to us discernment about who's in our midst. And I think that that discernment becomes obvious to us by a person's fruit, and not just their fruit, but by what they teach. Uh, and so as believers, we need to pay particularly close attention to, not live in skepticism, but also Be willing to observe people and not get caught up with hysteria or somebody's personality or their charm. Or, you know, maybe there's being aware self-aware of what's in us that we want to hear certain things so bad that it end up allowing us to receive something that can be quite damaging in the end.
0: So you're also saying how important it is to be biblically literate. One
2: thousand Percent, mm-hmm. absolutely,
0: yeah.
2: You know, Bill, I read something um, the other day from an educator, and I think he was really bang on the money when he says that the reason why we're in a, a crisis of faith, what he describes as a crisis of faith, why people are turning away from the gospel in our in our culture, is because education is presumptuously oftentimes for children, you know, children's church. But a lot of our churches, according to his statistics, have removed their children's church program, or excuse me, their Sunday school program. You know, people come on at 10 a.m. on Sundays to hear a word that will, quote, unquote, encourage them. They leave, they're kind of revved up. But nothing's, in these cases, not all churches, in some, there's no substance, there's no biblical teaching. Everybody wants it to be dumbed down, um, they don't want to come up They expect the teacher to come down. Instead of asking the teacher to bring them up, they want to bring the teacher down because after all, they're busy and they have a long life, a, a lot to do in their life. And, and I think that's the wrong attitude, and I think that attitude um, ultimately does those individuals in who think that way, that as believers – I mean, you're talking about C.S. Lewis – If you want to read Lewis, um, most of us would have to come up a a, a little bit to think on the level that he thinks and to process the way that he processes. And I think doing that is a form of godliness, Bill. I think it's a form of godliness, uh, honoring God with our minds, versus just expecting something to be dulled down and watered down to the point so we don't have to use our minds because we're in church.
0: Such an excellent point, Chris. And when you talk about coming up, which is such a good point. I think we live in a world of shortcuts, and shortcuts mm-hmm. never work out the way we think they're going to. Mm-hmm. So, Precisely. in other words, I don't have time to do this hard work and study, so just dumb it down mm-hmm. for me. And I'm guilty of that myself.
2: Well, I think we all are. I think that's the temptation that's in the culture. I mean, you know, when we talk about, when Paul talks about strongholds, I and mean, he's very keen to, to tell the Corinthian church about strongholds. I think he he means that at a, at a general level um the the cultural temptations that we're living in and in our society that's one of them is just everything is ready made don't I don't want to have to do the work I want to know right now I mean one of the most okay so I get this as a professor um when people find out I'm a professor that they, they want to go for the jugular and ask you the hardest question right away which is why does God allow suffering and and they'll say this just give me a quick answer And you're like, you're, you're literally asking one of the hardest questions and and you're, you're putting the burden on me to give you an easy answer. That's not even fair to do something like that. You know,
0: it's not at all. So Yeah.
2: Yeah. And I think that, you know, the way that I would maybe language and answer that is not all questions that are questions that are that deep are require learning and require looking at things. Um, and I don't think anyone who's ever being asked that question has to feel responsible for trying to put it in a simple way. It's, it's, a, it's a heavy question. It's a complex question, and it requires complex answers, okay? And so, you know, the old well Jesus gave simple answers. Jesus wasn't always so simple as we think he was. He was very, Jesus was using a lot of, I mean, just read his kingdom parables. Read Matthew 13, Matthew 24. These are things that are not, very easy to understand. And you have to wrestle with these things. So I think um, we do people a disservice to try and simplify everything. We do ourselves a disservice in the process of that.
0: All right, Chris, before we uh, leave here, let's just review our two words, yes. and placo yes. and paris duo.
2: You got it. I mean, we have learned two more Greek words. Yeah. Tell Rosie, add it to her list. I You've will. Got two she, she's
0: got a list going. <laughs> so tell everyone again, and placo means what?
2: Um, flaco means to get entangled in or to get wrapped up in something to the point of, of, uh, you know, destruction at some point.
0: Okay. Almost. Okay. And Mm -hmm. Paris duo.
2: I mean, to sneak in or to creep in like like a teenager coming home past his curfew.
0: Yeah. So So well done. Chris, I enjoy this time together, and I I love that I know more about you now that you used to try to make cones and weren't very good at it. (laughs)
2: Still not very good. At something it. So something about that just makes,
0: makes me happy. I don't know why. But thanks for spending time and teaching us some Greek. Yeah. It
2: was my honor, Bill. Thank you for having me. You
0: bet. Reverend Chris Palmer has been my guest, and his book is Strange Scriptures, Deciphering 52 Weird, Bizarre, and Curious Verses from the New Testament. That's our show for today. It's been great. It's so nice to have Patrick here, uh, and then the Monday afternoon mix with Pastor David Miles, PDM, and our special guest, Joanne Lundberg. And then Jarrett Stevens, his book is The Mountains Are Calling, making the climb for a clearer view of God and ourselves. And then, of course, Chris Palmer, the Reverend Chris Palmer, who taught us some Greek. We will take a short break and be back with more in just a minute.